Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. This is my joke. It's all uh, about the World Cup 2010. After the very, very bad performance of the French team, what we are saying now, because we call our French team Les Bleus, because they play with a blue color. But now the joke we're saying in France is if you want to see Les Bleus win, you need to go see the movies Avatar. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from Top Chef Master Ludo Lefebvre. And uh, speaking of the World Cup, go Netherlands. Go Phillies. Coming up, Blitzen Trapper, Wine Machines, The Stone of Scone, Big Eyes, Small Brains, Drinking Dirt, and New Waves music. But first, time for Small Talk. So, Rico, welcome back. Thanks. I, I'm happy to see you. And Sorry, I haven't done the dishes. <laughs> didn't didn't fold the laundry. The place stinks. <laughs> it's full of flies. Something else I didn't do was read the news all week because I'd been doing it the past two episodes. So, yeah, can you, you please me. let me know what the headlines are? I'm barely over the jet lag, man. All right, we'll give it a go. Uh, Brendan, this week was all about theater. Okay. A bunch of uh, Russian spies were caught pretending to be U.S. citizens. Acting! Supreme Court nominee Alina Kagan and the U.S. Senate pretended to hold a confirmation hearing of depth and substance. That was an Oscar nominee. That's right. And the American people pretended to care that Larry King was retiring. You know what? Senator Burb would have cared. But he passed away. Alas. So all one... of Larry King's audience disappeared, and he retired. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we uh, asked our colleagues at Marketplace to tell us about some lesser-known stories masquerading as news. Delassie Michelis, web developer, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, apparently this company uh, came up with a sort of lightsaber that emits a very, very, very powerful laser. And uh, to... Wait, with a real lightsaber? Well, it's real enough that George Lucas ordered a cease and desist on it because it resembles a lightsaber. Uh, the company says, it, quote, it is the most dangerous laser ever created. And the purpose of this is what to have our nation's geeks de- accidentally decapitate themselves. We're in an economic downturn. We need geeks. Well, I was thinking about using it as a laser pointer to uh, scorch my enemy's PowerPoint presentations. Bill Radke, host of the Marketplace Morning Report. What's your story this weekend? As I'm pouring the dinner drinks, I'm going to talk about wine vending machines. Is this a fantasy of yours? No, no, this is a reality of mine. They have vending machines where you can buy wine by the glass or the taste if you pass the machine's breathalyzer. Some of the the glasses go for $50 a piece. So imagine shoving 50 perfect ones into a vending machine. (laughs) And if you fail the breathalyzer, then the machine will refund your money 200 quarters. Stacey Vanek-Smith, senior reporter at Marketplace, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Worst hangover ever, Rico. Uh, This trader, Stephen Noel Perkins, uh, just got fined hundred thousand dollars he got drunk and he bought a half a billion dollars worth of oil futures <laughs> did that pay off for him actually his company lost 10 million dollars and he actually pushed the price of oil up to a record high last year i think we owe this guy a great debt it's like no matter what mistakes we make while drunk at least we didn't buy a half a billion dollars in oil futures i know i feel so much better about a couple of like really unfortunate karaoke incidents And now, time for cocktails. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a chubby kid in a bathing suit shooting down a water slide and into a pool of booze. <laughs> history is actually a chubby kid stuck in the slide, and you need a hose of booze to get him out. That's what I think. That's how I think of history. First, the history. This week back in 1996, the British government announced the Stone of Scone was going home. Now, most folks at your dinner party will probably guess the Stone of Scone is some sort of new prep surface for tea cakes. Our friend Michelle Philippi is here to tell you the real story. The Stone of Scone has to be the most well-traveled 340-pound sandstone brick in history. It started out in the town of Scone, Scotland, where for centuries it was used as a ceremonial throne. During coronations, Scottish kings sat on the stone to receive their crowns. They called it the Stone of Destiny. Then, in 1296, England's King Edward conquered Scotland and took the stone on its first trip back to England where he had a big wooden chair built around it. For the next 700 years, British monarchs were crowned in that chair, symbolically parking their derriers atop Scotland itself. That didn't sit well with some Scots. So in 1950, they took the stone on another ride. Some Scottish students snuck into Westminster Abbey, pulled the stone out of King Edward's chair, and smuggled it back to Scotland. Three months later, police found it and hauled it right back to England. And there ended its journeys. Just kidding. In 1996, Britain's conservative government sent the stone on its fourth road trip when they decided to return it to its home country. The first glimpse of the stone back home. A ceremonial journey marked its return seven centuries after being taken by the English. Scotsmen celebrated and then voted the Conservatives out of office anyway. The stone's not done traveling yet. The deal is, whenever a new British monarch is crowned, the stone has to be sent back to London for Coronation Day, after which it'll head home, unless it decides to take a vacation in Waikiki. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Hans Gerner from the Kelvin Arms, which is a Scottish bar in Houston, Texas. Hans, I'm guessing with a name like that, you're not of Scottish descent. No, I'm not, but uh, <laughs> you can look at it as Hans is German for Ian. Oh, what's the Kelvin Arms? How, how did you end up there? Well, I, um, I used to own a German bar, and I sold it, and now I have purchased a Scottish bar. So, What's the difference between a German and a Scottish bar? The Scottish tend to drink a little bit more. <laughs> Better for business. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, Hans, uh, you know, you had a chance to hear the history. Uh, what cocktail did it inspire you to make? Well, I decided to go with the Irish car bomb theme and turn it into a Scottish car bomb type of thing and call it the Kelvin car bomb. So how do you make this drink? It will be a half a pint of Belhaven Scottish ale. Okay. Then you take a shot glass with a uh, half a shot of scotch and then the other half of Drambouille, both fine Scottish products. Okay. Then you drop it into the half pint of Scottish ale, and then you chug. You're going to throw up, and on the wall it'll be the color of a tartan or something. (laughs) 
You know, it's interesting actually talking to someone in Texas because you know how Scotland has a kind of an uneasy relationship with the rest of England. They want to be recognized as their own entity, right. yet they're part of the United Kingdom. And, and I, would, I would argue Texas is probably the closest parallel in the U.S. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Texas once upon a time was an independent nation and actually had a, uh, an embassy in London. Really? I didn't know that. Yes, sir. Well, you, but you haven't yet had a character in James Bond a la Sean Connery, so you, you guys have a way to go. <laughs> well, we have a shrine to Sean Connery here at the Kelvin Arms. <laughs> oh, do you? Yes, we do. <laughs> All right, Rico, for the record, I did try to get a real Scott. You tried hard. But due to the time difference and their incredibly strong accents... This is true. I had to get, um, you know, a Scott proxy. But I have to admit, it feels a little weird. I ended up talking to a guy named Hans in Texas for the Scottish segment. (laughs) It's like... Like tofu haggis or something. <laughs> it feels like some totally weird juxtaposition. And and haggis is weird in its natural state. But actually, I learned about Hans through our Facebook group, and everybody out there, you can join us there. It's facebook.com forward slash dinner party download. Our guests of honor this week are Eric Early and Brian Cook of the band Blitzen Trapper. They've been around for six years. They just released their fifth full length. It's called Destroyer of the Void. And they launched the second leg of their tour on July 23rd. Hello, Eric. Hello. And hello, Brian. Hi. First of all, this is just a beautiful record. I really love it. Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And it ranges from this big, epic prog rock sound to very quiet and intimate songs. And as the album goes along, it feels to me almost like a story. There are all these peaks and valleys of emotion, and I found myself wanting it to be a concept album. Is it? <laughs> Please tell me it is, and that I'm not insane. Uh, well, you're insane, <laughs> and it is a concept album. Great. Simultaneously. Well, I guess I win half the time. <laughs> it can be a concept record if you want it to be. That's what I tell everybody. I didn't really plan it that way. I mean, I recorded these songs um, in two different chunks, a year apart from each other. So, But then we chose out of those two groups of songs, you know, in a way that would make it make sense or something. I, just, I think what gives it a rock opera feel to me are songs like the title cut sure, and uh, also the song Below the Hurricane, which are made up of little musical scenes almost. And there are these dissolves between them that feel like set changes within the song. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course. I can feel the future in your skin. definitely like a theatrical quality to a lot of that stuff I think. I think it depends on how you define a concept album you know. There are many concepts in play in the record battling back and forth. Which one comes out on top? We're loath to sort of talk about but like I would say that it's not a concept record but it's conceptual. How's that? I always ask at some point in the uh, interview, everybody gets asked two questions here on, on our show. And one of them is, if we're seated next to you at a dinner party, what question shouldn't we ask you? Is the concept album thing the question? No, no. There's other questions that you should not ask me. Like? Well, at a dinner party, the question I most do not want to be asked, I think, is, uh, you didn't use the upstairs bathroom, did you? <laughs> because it implies something has already gone terribly wrong. I think it's obvious what it implies. That's true. I've been at certain fancy parties where you know you're drinking with the guys and they're 
discussing golf and tennis and they're like what are you what's your favorite sport and i inevitably can't lie and so i say oh nascar and at that point uh, it's usually when i'm escorted out of the party <laughs> your favorite sport is nascar yeah what if yeah i got no problem with you for that man oh rad man why is there such a, a problem with nascar why do people hate it so much i don't <laughs> i don't because it's one of the only sports where fans in the crowd can be killed. Yeah, that might put some people <laughs> off. Um, all right, our second question is, tell us something we don't know. Well, I suppose the one that jumps to mind, because I've been staying in a lot of hotels recently and watching a lot of late night. I don't normally do television, but it's like the only drug that you can do in all the states. There you go. Legally. So lately, I've been doing some of um, Animal Planet, and I learned that there are a couple animals whose eyes are bigger than their brains. <laughs> this is true. An ostrich is one. Me at a restaurant is another. <laughs> that, that was the other one, was your eyes. No, no. Um, the other one, I believe, is the type of lemur. Is there a reason for that? They need to have a, a, a greater view on the world because they're being attacked constantly or something? For the lemur, it's because it's nocturnal, and so its eyes have just gotten huge to have the nighttime advantage over its uh, competitors. All right. Well, the next time I'm at a dinner party full of zoologists, I'm going to trot that out. I hope I'm right, or else you are going to be f***ing humiliated. <laughs> So, Brendan, I refuse to be humiliated. That's not true. So I ch- <laughs> That's true. I'm, I'm here right now. <laughs> so I checked it out. It is not a lemur. It is a lemur-like animal called a tarsier. Ah. But here's the... You want to know something else about the tarsier? I don't think I have a choice. I learned this from the BBC. They like to <laughs> forage near each other, which nobody can figure out because they're actually more successful at foraging when they're apart. It's, so they're like the European Union, essentially. <laughs> Well, look, uh, listeners of our show, you can check out our website. It's called dinnerpartydownload.com, and you will find a song from Blitz and Trapper there. So we heard from our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we learn about food. So, Rico, I kind of covered a serious topic this week. Hmm. Terrorism. (laughs) The war on... I still can't say that word. The war on terroir. That's right. Well, actually, not the war on terroir, but an armistice on terroir, like an embracing of terroir, Terroir, whatever that uh, word is. For those who don't speak snob, uh, I should note that terroir would be the idea that the taste of food is affected by where it's grown. Yes. Correct? And up in San Francisco, an artist named Laura Parker got really into this idea, so she decided to make it literal. She set up a bar in a gallery where she holds dirt tastings. Now, you don't actually... Wait, <laughs> you can't just say dirt tastings. <laughs> actually, then... I can't say terroir. We've established that, but I can but... say dirt tastings. All right, explain. You don't actually eat the dirt. What she does is she puts it in a wine glass, and you smell it, you consider it, and then you eat a vegetable that was grown in the dirt. All right. So the other day, I decided to give it a go. Okay, so these vegetables look beautiful, and to get to them we need to go through the dirt. So tell me a little bit about the soil we have. This soil comes from Woolly Farms, which is in Gridley, California. Um, this is a gridley sandy loam. What, what does loam mean? Soils are kind of based on, on three types. There's clay, there's sand, and then there's loam. And we think of loam as being that, that really dark, rich stuff is very loamy. You don't get offended if I call it dirt instead of soil, do you? No, actually, this is one of my big things. It's like, I want to take the dirt out of dirty. <laughs> or the dirty out of dirt. Yeah. Either, either way you want to say it. Right, so you want to reclaim the word dirt. 
Absolutely, because everyone says that, oh, it's soil, and yes, soil is manicured, the, the farmers work on it. But there are a lot of places that have really fertile dirt that haven't been worked with, and they're as valuable as the ones that have. So we're loading it up into a wine glass, pouring the water in here. And then you just mm, aerate it. I can smell it already from over here, yeah. yeah. There you go. All right, it has great legs, I'll tell you that. It, it kind of reminded me of uh, in the summers we would wake up really early and go to this creek, and it smells like the intersection of the water and the kind of the, the shoreline there. There was a lot of water flowing through the land where, where this farm was, so a lot, it was like a riverbed, and that's, that's what you're smelling when you activate it. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to taste the zucchini. Good, this is the first vegetable I've had in two days. <laughs> There's like a... Like a verdant, it's like it's a, yeah, mm. yeah, there's like a greenish undertone. I don't know if that's, if that's a flavor, but I, this herbaceousness or something mm -hmm. like that. Well, I think one of the things when people come to the tasting is they think that there's going to be something that's immediate and that it's direct and that there's a right answer. And it's really just about paying attention for that moment to how the food is for you. Have you gotten to the point where you do nibble on the dirt a little bit? I do. And when I'm out at the farms, I'll always, you know, have my hands in the dirt and then you pick it up and I'll lick it and taste it. See, the average person eats seven pounds of dirt a year. So what do you, 15, 20 pounds of dirt a year? Oh, easily. <laughs> well, it freaks me out a little, so it must be art. No, but it's not just artists, actually. Um, chefs around the country are starting to make dishes informed by dirt, like that look like dirt. Well, your your dream true. can come true. You can actually be buried in food. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe mud pies will replace cupcakes. That's a dream come true. <laughs> if you're going to act like children, you're going to eat like children. We And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. You can keep up with us between episodes on Twitter. We are Dinner Party DNLD. Can you keep up with us? Thanks this week to Christiania Clark and the M5 Gallery. And we leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a tune to play on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. So this week it's a new tune from San Diego band Waves. That's with two Vs. Here's a song from their album coming out later this summer. It's called Post Acid. Bon appetit. Am I?
I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I claim your microphone stands for the land of Lake Wobegon. King Garrison. A pox on your powder milk! <laughs>